Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Darren Shaw. Dr. Shaw is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, the co-director of the Fox News Poll, and one of the pair of pollsters who conducts our annual Reagan National Defense Survey. Roger and Darren discuss the latest defense survey results, as well as his recent article in National Affairs and the effect of high voter turnout on a political party. Darren Shaw, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Well, you are a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, for those watching, um, that explains the picture behind uh, Darren right now. And you're also the co-director of the Fox News poll. Tell us how you got into polling and why. It's something that a lot of pe- people have strong feelings about, but they often don't really like what they see. Well, uh, I went to uh, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, as, a, as an undergraduate. I was interested in politics. Um, and like, like a lot of us who are interested in politics, I was as or more interested in process it wasn't public policy, which I guess makes me shallow and light in some ways. So I'll, I'll, I'll dress it up by saying I was interested in democratic processes there we go. And campaigns. And uh, I took a wonderful class there from a uh, my guy who turned out to be my mentor, John Petrosik, um, who was a specialist in campaigns and voting. Uh, and there was a dedicated section in this public opinion and voting class, an honors section where he actually you know, gave us a data set, a polling data set, taught us how to use a statistical package and and gave us kind of a, you know, in addition to the regular course, had this sort of crash course in real statistical analysis of data. And I, I guess, Roger, the easiest way to sort of put it is I, I was and remained fascinated by the right brain and left brain elements of public opinion research. There is an art to it and there is a science to it. And, and that fascinated me, right? How do you craft a question? How do you... How do you put it in a way that real people can understand and, and is, is going to you know, elicit correct or thoughtful opinions? And then on the other side, you know, how do you do the probability part of it correctly? How do you make sure it's representative? All, those things together really intrigued me. Um, as, as someone who likes both art and science, um, you know, it was kind of a nice place to be. Interesting. So the art, the, the art and the science, the right side, left side of the brain, um, do this for our listeners and watchers. Polling is not something that, at least my sense in, in anecdotally, people really trust or, or feel confident about and, and are somewhat skeptical. I'm sure you hear that all the time when your students and peers and, uh, and just a popular treatment. Tell us why polling should be trusted and should be used uh, and is still a useful and important tool. Sure. I think maybe the number one question I get both in class with my undergraduates here at University of Texas and then when I when I speak to larger audiences is, you know, how can you possibly represent the opinions of all Americans based on 800 interviews? Or a flip side is people say, look, I've never been polled. So how can you, you know, how can you claim to represent people like me? <laughs> and the, the, the simplest way I put it, I, I could put it is, um, you know, what we're trying to do is uncover some in some ways, unknowable truth. That is to say, there's a there's a population, whether it's America or Texas or right. you know California or wherever, there's a, a there is a true distribution of opinion towards President Biden, President Trump, President Reagan, whoever we're talking about. People have attitudes about that person, and and what polling attempts to do is to discover those attitudes. And we've known since the early part of the last century that there is a statistical way to do that. Um, and it's associated with some things that are way too kind of in the weeds for people to care much about the law of large numbers and, you know, but, but the, the easiest version of it is, um, you know, if you want to discover, let's take a coin flip as an example. Um, there is a true probability with respect to flipping a coin, 50% heads, 50% tails. If you flip a coin three times, you might get three straight heads, right? But the more you flip the coin, the more likely you are. In other words, if you think of each flip as a case, right. the more likely you are to co- uncover the true distribution of heads versus tails. So as you get to 10 flips, 20 flips, 100 flips, you're going to get roughly 50% heads and 50% tails, right? And, and that's what we do in polling. 
if you randomly sample enough people, you're going to, you know, construct an estimate of the true. You're going to get closer to the opinion. truth. Exactly. And, and, you know, so my, my friend at, at Fox News, Dana Blanton, who's the research director there, she uses, you know, the soup analogy, right? Which is, there's a, a pot of soup is like the, all of the opinions out there. And what you're doing with the poll is you're, you're going and you're taking a spoonful and you're tasting it. And from that taste, you, you understand if there's too much salt, too much sugar, you, you know, you, you get a real sense of the flavor of the soup. You don't need to drink the entire vat. <laughs> I guess this is the easy way to put it. Even though one individual feels that their particular flavor or spice may not be captured there specifically, right. yeah, somehow and, it's going to be incorporated, playing with your analogy here. Right. She she prefers the soup analogy. I, I use the blood analogy, which is when a doctor is, is diagnosing you, they don't need to drain your body of blood to get a sense of what, you know, whether there's disease present, whether you're healthy. They, they simply you just went Texas sample. on us. You went from soup to blood. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is where we have these, these conflicts. Dana's <laughs> opinion is, why do you use the blood analogy all the time? <laughs> <That's right. so. laughs> well, you know, another way I think about polling is there's a, a predictive element, which is generally what irks people. The polls are saying this person will win or lose. And then the reality may be somewhat different. It takes people like you to explain, well, perhaps you weren't interpreting the poll correctly or this wasn't uh, a comprehensive poll. And then there's kind of polling to explain what happened um, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, both, uh, I know you're involved in, we of course in the uh, greater DC area had the Virginia gubernatorial election that got national attention with the election of Glenn Youngkin uh, based on the polling you've seen, what do you think drove those numbers there? What was the story? What are the takeaways from your analysis of the polling in terms of explaining what happened? Yeah, well, we were, we meaning Fox News, uh, had a poll. We did three Virginia polls over the course of the campaign, uh, one in September, two in October. The last poll we did was about, uh, came out of the field about nine days, 10 days before the election. And our poll had, amongst all registered voters in Virginia, I think we had 1,100, 1,200 cases, uh, we had uh, Yunkin plus one. But at, at that point, late in the campaign, we, like most pollsters, um, switched to a likely voter screen. And in the case of Fox News, we ask a couple of attitudinal questions, most of which uh, deal with voting. Yeah, how likely are you to vote? How interested are you in the election? How engaged are you, et cetera? And uh, we, they're, they're a light touch. In other words, if, if people tell us they're interested and they're going to vote, they're a likely voter. We're not you know, doing background checks on them or something for goodness right. sakes. But, uh, and what we found the Virginia race was that, remember that, that plus one young can lead amongst registered voters. Well, that went to plus eight with our likely voter screen. And, you know, we had long conversations about, you know, is our screen too, uh, is it too demanding? That was I mean, a little surprising. I mean, just look at your surprising. body language right. there, right? And that's, right. that's a big jump. Exactly. And, you know, we've, like a lot of the media polls, but we take pride on this. We're very transparent. So we put both numbers out there. And then in the, uh, you know, in our, our write-up of the poll, we basically said, look, um, this election really seems to be about Republican engagement and enthusiasm compared to Democratic. Uh, complacency is kind of a strong word, but there just wasn't the same kind of intensity the Democrats had displayed in 2018, 2020, when, you know, they would have walked across broken glass to get out and vote against Donald Trump. Well, mm -hmm. that wasn't there this time. And, you know, so we, the interesting thing was we thought we captured the story of the election, right? Was that Republican enthusiasm and interest in the election was significantly higher than the Democrats. Um, but we also said, look, this poll, to your point, Roger, is a snapshot in time. This is nine to 10 days out. Right. And we know that the Democratic campaigns, McAuliffe has really shown this in his past campaigns. They know how to mobilize voters. So, you know, I think my colleague, Chris Anderson's quote was, look, there's time for, McAuliffe to really get back into this, but the world can change in eight days, and all of a exactly. sudden, people yeah, are motivated to get out there. Yeah. So the the essence of your question though is a really good one, which is as as pollsters, we know the predictive element of what we're doing is why people are interested. If if our polls aren't predictive, then nobody really cares. But we also so we want to take advantage of that, and we love the fact that that's what causes people to read these polls. But on the other hand, we, we're constantly almost arguing against ourselves, saying. I know this is why you're looking at this poll, but things can change. And, and it, it, I guess it can seem a little duplicitous from the, from the public, but, but we're really serious about it, right? Which is we all think politics matter. Politics is fluid. It's not static. And, and so 
you know, the kind of weasel language that you hear associated with polls a lot of times is important. It's important to remind people that, hey, this is where we are right now. And in our case, we actually thought there's reason to believe the race will tighten, the Democrats will get engaged late. But we were kind of happy we came out directionally on the right side of that poll, of that election outcome, I have to say. And then indeed it played out. So that, that likely right. voter poll that you're referencing eight days before the election seemed to hold. Yeah. It, and, and I think, you know, again, it told the story of the election. That was, a, that was an election in which the, the constellation of issues that, that motivated people was highly favorable to the Republicans. I mean, if, if, if you sort of take uh, public education issues, especially, you know, kind of curriculum arguments uh, and COVID mandates um, as being the top issue, COVID was still there more generally as an issue and that favored the Democrats. But, um, but you know, the issues involving education, um, immigration, believe it or not, was on the radar screen in, uh, in Virginia and the economy were all favorable to Yunkin. Uh, you know, McAuliffe was, even though he wasn't running for re-election, he was kind of seen as the incumbent. And what yeah, we saw in our poll, he'd been there before. Yeah. Yeah. And he never, he never got really much, uh, he got to 50%, I think, or 51% in one of the three polls that we did. And that's, it's, it's a conventional wisdom, but it's a reasonable one. If, if, if the incumbent or person defending the seat for the incumbent party can't break 50%. Typically that, that person's got some problems. Two quick follow-ups. One, the education issue. I mean, the, the DMV was littered with the commercial of McAuliffe during the debate saying something to the effect of, you know, parents shouldn't have a choice in what their what their children are taught in schools. Did you, see that issue did that matter to the, to the i mean i'm assuming they're throwing all this money in commercials because it really was firing up uh voters and then related second when you're talking about what happened it seemed like there was motivation on the republican voters and democratic voters weren't going to turn out they were they were not you know the, the voters you're talking to there there weren't as many kind of going to that likely voter category so um one, talk about the education piece, and, and was that a good investment by the campaign that really trying to drive more people into that voter column? And two, was it a Democrat sitting on the sidelines, or the numbers were more just Republicans really came out uh, for, for Youngkin? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the second question first. Um, extraordinarily high turnout election for an off year um, you know, statewide election. Right. Cause it's um, not a midterm. It's not a presidential right. election. Virginia's weird. This is like just a year after yep. Biden, you know, presidential election. That's the off year. Yeah. It, it's, it, you know, political junkies love Virginia and uh, New Jersey and these off year elections. Cause they give us something to do in between these sort of big contests. Uh, and people read too much into them sometimes because it, it, again, we're a year out from the midterm elections and a lot can change, but, uh, but, but the, Education issue was fascinating to watch. Um, I, I tend to think, so first of all, was the investment, um, I'll sort of hopscotch back and forth between the two questions. I'll turn to Virginia real quickly with education. Uh, was the investment good? Well, first, you know, it's interesting as, as a pollster, we came in and confirmed something that the youngkin and everybody with a political brain understood immediately when McAuliffe made that statement in the debate about, well, you know, I don't think parents should be telling the school boards what to teach kids. That just sounds so bad to the ear. I mean, you don't have to have a, you know, advanced degree in political science to know right. that's not a great statement. And they immediately turned out and ran commercials. Uh, we, we included, in, I think, our second survey, we asked a question specifically about whether you agree with that statement. And it was I, I, close to three quarters. I think about 75% of Virginians said they, they disagreed with that. And a large chunk of them said strongly disagreed. Mm. Um, and then in both that poll and then in the last survey that we did, the late one in Virginia, uh, we asked a question, uh, you know, which candidate do you think would better handle? And we listed a series of issues, um, you know, from the economy to COVID to public education. And now this is an issue, education typically is an issue that Democrats dominate. Um, you know, there are very few Republicans who beat Democratic candidates on the issue of education. And Youngkin was ahead of McAuliffe on the issue. And, it, you know, you understand the Democratic advantage traditionally because education tends to be dominated by which party is going to spend more on education. Democrats tend to, to win these spending fights. Uh, but clearly the criteria people were using when they came to evaluate public education was different in Virginia. It's and about it had content to do with, and choice. 
content choice, curricular control. I, yeah. I think a, a, a backlash against, in particular, I distinguish between school boards and school administrators. I mean, we, we have these issues in Texas right now, and I've been kind of championing this when we do these polls. Um, I don't think it's right to ask about school boards. School boards don't typically have a lot of control over curricula. They make broad decisions, but but they're usually reviews of curricular development. Okay. Curricula set by school administrators. And I think that's the focal point of, of the ire of parents in Virginia and you know here in Austin in the Eden School District and the um, Austin AISD District. Uh, it's the administrators who are perceived to have a political agenda more so than the school boards are elected administrators are not and that's kind of a, an important distinction here so um mcauliffe made a huge mistake it reinforced this kind of general uh you know disaffection with what's going on in the schools it's been exacerbated by COVID, etc and Yunkin won the issue flat out and when a republican wins you know on education that's bad news for the Democratic candidate. So that, that, that's pretty interesting. It's one of these instances where perhaps those more entrenched in the political world, their minds are made up. They're going to they're gonna support a Republican or a Democrat. But this is an indication that you know, debates matter. Yeah. And I don't know if a debate can win it for someone, but it can certainly it can hurt it. someone significantly. <laughs> and and, and yeah. it seems to me... The data you've seen and the way you're kind of piecing together that debate and the polling, uh, it really hurt McCall. Yeah, I, I think it did. And, you know, there's a it's interesting whether looking forward, I think Republicans are, you know, interested in education as an issue that they can they can campaign on in 2022. Democrats, on the other hand, um, have, have responded, at least a lot of them have responded by saying this is a phony issue that's the critical race theory, CRT yeah, is, yeah. you know, astroturf, it's not organic, it's coming down. And I think both parties are misreading this. Um, what do you mean by that? You, why are both parties misreading it? Yeah, Republicans, well, I think that, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I think Republicans, here's how I think Republicans are slightly misreading it. Um, I think their sense is this is something they can drive as an issue kind of across the country. I don't think that's that's correct. I think the issue either exists in a local context or it doesn't. Um, in, you know, for instance, as I said, in Austin, there are fights over curricula and, and, and how to teach race. So it's really locality by locality, whether or yeah. not parents are feeling that the curriculum, curricula are, you know, is responsive or not responsive to what they want and right. what, what they right. think their children should be taught and so that's going to vary across not just states but with you know county by county yeah and i think the the the, the cautioner that i would have is like you're not going to go into a place where these fights aren't occurring and convince people that they are occurring i, I think that's the the element of it now they are obviously occurring in a lot of places right but, it's it's certainly not but, unique to virginia but i take exactly. the point yeah. it's not a it may not be you know statewide across 50 states interesting right. we as you may know the reagan foundation and institute has been running a time for choosing series which is a speaker series we're bringing in leading voices in the conservative movement republican party a lot of presidential hopefuls have participated but it's not limited uh to people like that i would say when those speakers come in every speaker does it they'll talk about restoring american pride um, really countering kind of progressive culture that only views American history through a negative lens. That gets tremendous applause and interest from the in-person audience, which is hundreds, sometimes over a thousand people. And relatedly, when they talk about education and what's being taught to our students, and you can be honest about history, but you also have American pride, you know, that type of language. Anecdotally, Darren, it's probably the biggest applause line uh, speaker will receive. So yeah. my, I yeah. raise that because the consultants and the people crafting these speeches definitely think that it may not be something uh, a voter is feeling with respect to their child or, or their locality or county, but they do feel that there's a national issue afoot here that they yeah. want a candidate to address. Yeah. It's it, absolutely correct. I, I, I would, you know, happily concede that point. I think I'll go even further. So I, I do think that the way in which this is approached, like my only point is that I think uh, 
you know, arguing that, uh, you know, your particular school administrators are out of touch because they're pushing CRT, if they're not pushing CRT is a, you know, is a, is an odd claim to make. But to your general point, I think there's a sense, and this is kind of a broader story. I mean, you see it in public opinion research where um, one of the things that we think is a foundation for uh, voting turnout, which we can get back to in a minute here, uh, is civics education in high school. And, you know, the way I was taught was that, you know, voting is, the only question was, is voting a, a, a duty or an obligation? And we parse the words obligation versus duty, right? And this is something that, um, you know, my, my sons were in Boy Scouts and part of the Citizenship and Nation Merit Badge is having these conversations about this kind of stuff. Um, the sense I think amongst voters is, is that kind of civics education, which, which pushes your obligation as a citizen of the United States is, is increasingly absent from school curriculum that, that, you know, and that parents teach it, but it's not reinforced in the schools. And I think what's the notion now is that it's not only not taught that it is undermined by what's going on in the public schools. And there's a long story here about, um, you know, the kinds of people, um, professionally in their ideological orientation that have moved into school administrator positions and the agenda that they have and and that, that there's an ideological imbalance that that it's it's you know become a place where people in the 1960s who were kind of had ideas about public education you know sort of moved into public ed and now are decision makers and kind of dominant voices there and that it's it's changed you know the, the well, entire and, fabric and this this you know what you're what you're characterizing here is for sure perhaps what's driving this this concern and why this yep. is something people are so responsive to i want to i want to move to one uh part of your your resume um which i, I and and the particular role that you played in, in the 2020 presidential election and then we'll talk about um your article the turnout myth which appeared in national affairs and and really is where i want to dig into for uh most of the the balance of our conversation but uh, I can't have you on the show without uh, kind of addressing you as your co-director of the Fox News poll and going back to the 2020 presidential election where uh, Fox made the call that Biden won Arizona. And um, that was ahead of others. Obviously, President Trump was highly critical of that. And there was a lot of criticism thrown at uh, at the Fox News decision desk without hopefully not traumatizing you, but take us through <laughs> that a little bit. Um, and, you know, you, did that go down the way it should upon reflection? Uh, seems to be with multiple audits in Arizona from all sorts of, you know, people have reviewed it. You know, it's obviously stood the test of time. Uh, how do you look at that and kind of share that with with our listeners and viewers? What happened in Arizona on election night? Sure. Um, well, there's a, a real quick backdrop, and that is in up until, from, I want to say 1996 until 2016, Fox was one of um, six members of the exit polling consortium. And, and so, you know, so ABC, CBS, CNN, NBC, Fox News, Associated Press, all uh, pooled resources and uh, engaged a, a vendor who would go out and conduct exit polls. Traditionally, right. exit, exit polls, polls right. just so everybody's on the same page, right? You're outside the polling, someone's just voted, and they kind of share what happened right. with, with, with that individual, and that gives you uh, the tools to predict an outcome. Right. You, you're predicting outcomes, and it's also, you know, you're getting data back that allows the, the networks to describe what happened. As, as you suggested earlier, Roger, there's just two elements of it, right? You're, you're trying to t- tell people who won and then why. And in, right. in fact, you know, in the from media perspective, the why is, the, you know, the, the who won is the two minutes at the top of the hour. And then the why is the 58 minutes in the remainder of the show. So uh, Associated Press and Fox broke from the consortium after the 2016 elections. And uh, a, a large part of it was there's so much early vote out there that we were a little, you know, dissatisfied or at least thought that the, the, the methodology was shifting in a way that we wanted to, to try to incorporate. And so we piloted a new system along with Associated Press in 2018 and 2020. So you fast forward to the 2020 election, um, and I, I think this new methodology where we were doing thousands and thousands of interviews in the, the two or three or four or five days up until the election and then on election day uh, allowed us to have a 
really good insight into not simply the election day vote, but the early vote. Fascinating. So, so, so voters, you know, states now are giving voters the opportunity to vote early and people are taking advantage of it, particularly in a pandemic, right? So yep. it was going to be utilized a lot more than perhaps in the past. You had a framework for getting after that. So you're coming into election night and you already have a good sense of how things are going to turn based on that polling. Right. And, 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 and this is not to, because the exit poll, to be clear, they, they have, they supplement the exit poll with some pre-election polls and, and they understand it. But, but we think, you know, we, we have a lot of confidence in, in our estimate. And as, as you suggested, the, the trend towards early voting was magnified by, by the pandemic. So states that didn't even have significant early voting programs adopted them for 2020. In the particular case of Arizona, what happened is in some ways, you know, for your audience, simple math, which is we have a standard of uh, one in 1200. There has to be uh, lower than a one in 1200 chance that the estimate by statistical properties is random noise. And once you get uh, a standard, once you meet that standard, you're in position to make a call. And so the, the data that we had, which involved- Let me just, This standard, you said this, which not having a statistical kind of background or training, that's not a particularly controversial thing. That must be like kind of the standard best right. way to go about it, one in 1200. Is that, is that fair? I think that's fair. After the 2000 election where, you know, had its own issues, obviously, yeah, um, uh, the standard was one in 400. And uh, most of the networks, maybe all of them, but I'll just say most of them uh, moved to a slightly more demanding standard, which, which means that um, just for your audience, so one in 1200 simply means that, um, you know, if, if you ran this scenario 1200 times, you know, you only one time would, you know, the other side win. Um, so the, the chance that it's a statistical anomaly, that it's an outlier is really, really minimal. Um, and in the case of Arizona, we hit that standard, you know, at uh, one in the morning or something like that, Eastern time. Um, and you know, what people were angry about, I was like, well, there was a lot of vote that was outstanding. Well, we had estimates of, as because of the way we were running our, uh, our poll estimates of not only the election day vote, but the early vote. And what we knew was that the early vote was kind of bifurcated that, um, you know, we thought that uh, our estimate was Trump needed 58.5% of the outstanding vote in order to win. And our estimate was he was going to get about 52, 52 and a half percent. And how did that. it play out? It played out. He ended up getting about 55% of that vote. Between now, the that's, 52 and 58. Right. And so and it was funny, you know, going on Twitter is a dangerous thing, Roger, but you know, we would go on Twitter and people would say, was like, well, Fox was lucky. And, and, you know, a lot of it was congratulatory. Fox ended up being right. And right. But, but in terms of, from our point of view, we thought, well, actually the, ch the chance that Trump got 55% was, was about one in 200. Right. So he, he actually did much better than he should have done given the, the data that we were seeing. But, but that's why we had that really demanding standard so reinforce that scale that you had absolutely i mean what, what were you we a little nervous through, though i mean oh, as, as they're doing <laughs> well i tell you what we were we 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 were angry at arizona irrationally but we know what they were doing they were counting what we call the late early vote people put their uh ballots in uh the day before on election day and we knew Trump was, was going to get about 58% of that vote. So what was happening was, is they were counting that vote first. And so people who had their spreadsheets at home were like, hey, Trump's hitting his targets. Boy, Fox must be sweating. Now, we knew that was, you know, we knew that was the best Trump could possibly do. And he wasn't over it. He was barely, you know, kind of getting what he needed. We knew once they went into the earlier early votes that he was going to fall short. And so we, we knew that, and we kept telling, uh, you know, people at the network and Republicans, look, you know, we're, we're sorry about this, but you know, he's going to be short and he's going to be, initially we thought it was going to be about a 20,000 vote spread it ended up being about 12,500 or something like that. So, so yeah, we were, we, we had him under what he ended up getting, but not something that made us, you know, incredibly uncomfortable. You know, the, the interesting thing was just the way the, the, the call was played and reacted to. I mean, from our perspective, you know, you hit a standard and you, you inform the, the people and then the people make the call to the network and it goes out to Brett Baer and, and Martha McCallum and, right. and Shannon and others. Um, but we were, we were a little, when we understand what we do, we understand why people watch, right? These calls are important, but, but the vitriol and the pushback 
um, was was surprising. And, you know, it put us in a position to defend the call. And we were happy to defend the call. Well, you had your methodology and you explained it, but that that's a yeah. lot of scrutiny there. La- yeah, last question on this, and we'll, we'll go to your your academic article, which uh, in some ways is as interesting, but probably less scrutinized than yeah. making the call in Arizona. You send that information up. You're ahead of others. You have your methodology. You're ready to call Arizona. It's the network that will make the decision whether or not we want to go live with this. Was there uh, a kind of a longer period of time where deliberating whether to make it public or is it is the methodology hey as soon as Darren and team send us the outcome we give it to Brett Bear and he tells the world no it goes through the uh, the head of the decision desk um and uh you know Bill Salmon at the time and Bill basically turns to us he goes you know are you sure and we walk it through <laughs> and and there has to be unanimity on the decision desk all the members of the desk and then and, you know, I says, okay. And then, and Bill and, and other people who've worked the decision desk know to ask questions. Okay. What about provisional ballots? What about late ballots? And, and, and so you go the late that. early voting ballots. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and you have to be able to explain it to them because they have to be able to explain it to the talent and to the producers and things like that. So we, you know, we go through the ringer a couple of times and then, and I have no idea how much, and, and, it is the case that AP was because Fox was in the system with AP. AP made the call about the same time that Fox did. Um, in fact, they might have been right on top of us. Um, so it was interesting from our perspective. Uh, you know, we were we were pleased that AP saw the data the same way that we did. Uh, the other networks were in a trickier position because our our sense after the fact it was kind of funny because we put them in an awkward position because they weren't calling the race mm-hmm. and but we weren't looking at the same data. That's something that I think has never really been kind of properly communicated to people. They had their own exit poll. They didn't have the same data that we had. So we were various, very attentive to not criticizing anybody else, right? That's not right. We're, we're looking at, I understand it's the vote ultimately determines, but the, the models that we were using weren't relying on the same data as they were. Um, they weren't so reticent to criticize us, which we, we understood because they were defending <laughs> their caution. But um, our collective opinion was is that we, we wish Taking they would fire from everybody, from the disappointed Trump supporter watching Fox to the other networks yeah. who didn't like you got there first. Yeah. But by the way, right, just there. As, yeah, just as a, a, a quick aside, I, I think what it revealed, though, about elections is the significant mail-in votes, which take days to be counted, you have to process them and then count them. Uh, it's, and, and when those mail-in votes, when the vote by mode is really distinctively one side or the other, and in this case, it was, it was so democratic, which I think was a strategic error on the part of Trump, which is telling his supporters, Not don't do it. It's, yeah. It, it's, it's to, how, do you, how do you fault a Trump voter who's watching and their candidate is up by 10,000 or, or 100,000 votes on election night? And over the course of the next few days, that margin comes down. You know, we kept pleading with people, and I think the people at Fox did a pretty good job with this, but telling you have to tell people this is why this is happening, that it doesn't necessarily mean there's fraud. It's, it's just kind of the way the vote by mode is working right now. But I, I do think it is an open question about this mail-in system and relying on the postal service to deliver ballots and then have them processed and counted after the election. I I'm, I'm very skeptical about whether that's what we want to be doing. moving. Are you skeptical about mail-in voting because of the doubt it sows in the mind of the electorate and raises a suspicion of fraud? Or do you actually think mail-in voting in some ways undermines voter and voting integrity? I think the former. Um, I I think the the, the problem when you have situations like in California, for instance, so California adopted this ballot harvesting, uh, you know, in in advance of 2018, where members of groups or political parties are allowed to go out and collect ballots and then deliver to these sites. There's no evidence in 2018 or 2020 that there was fraud associated with that. But you've legalized a system where the potential to do mischief exists. And I'm, you know, what I would like Roger is to, I actually like the old days where we had an election day. Um, What I would prefer is to have, you know, 
have like a three-day election day. You know, start mm-hmm. on a Saturday, go Monday and have uh, go through Monday where Monday's a national holiday. Vote in person with a paper trail, and then tabulate them that well, I day. Mean- I want to get to the article, but now you've opened yeah. up the, the discussion about claims of voter and voting integrity versus uh, voter and uh, voting suppression. You know, this issue is kind of rampant in discussion after 2020. Allowing people to vote early, particularly think about the aged, mm-hmm. for example. Don't you enhance voting by mail-in voting, right? And and that and not allowing it and forcing people to vote on just one day or only, you know, in your case, two or three days, in some ways would suppress the ability of those to vote. Right. In most states, the obvious exceptions are people with disabilities, the aged, um, and then in the case of Texas, there's interesting exceptions for people who are out of county. And what we're largely talking about in the case of Texas are students who are at the University of Texas, but their residential addresses in Dallas or Houston. And those are obvious exceptions. And I think everybody would support those. Um, But what we've shown in the political science literature is that most early voting simply cannibalizes election day voting. Um, You know, people who are, you know, 99% likely to vote on election day are 100% likely to vote if you give them an opportunity to vote two weeks beforehand. I vote. Uh, convenience voting. I, d- I do early in person in Texas. Yeah, because you got go the to, Fox News. You know, yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go to New York on Election Day. But but uh, there's not a lot of evidence that that convenience voting significantly increases turnout. Um, and the other thing is it creates you know not to go total nerd on you, but information asymmetries. That is, I vote three weeks before the actual election day. In a presidential election, that rarely matters. You don't really learn too much about. You know, we know these men and women right. beforehand, but for lower visibility down ballot races, you know, stuff comes out and it comes out late. Um, and and I, I think that's an issue for the quality of democracy. Wait, so, I wouldn't have voted for McAuliffe if I knew he was going to say that. Exactly. Debate, for example. Yeah. But, or, you know, or some scandal comes out a week before. No, make, you know. Makes sense. Uh, perhaps another uh, session on uh, on the show, we'll, we'll talk about these issues. But I got to go to another area of polling and data analysis that you've done, and that is with voter turnout. Really interesting article you published in National Affairs. The, the, the title is, Does High Voter Turnout Help One Party? And you argue that both Republicans and Democrats, so this is not one party's view, but it's, it's both sides, seem to be convinced that higher turnout, that means an election where you get more people voting, helps Democrats, and hurts Republicans. That's the mindset of so-called consultants and political experts. And you have analyzed the data, and it's not the case. Tell, tell us what you found and, and the kind of the argument you put in this National Affairs article. Super interesting. We'll link to it uh, for the show. Sure. The We, we I should uh, acknowledge my co-author, John Petrosik, who is a uh, chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Missouri. He's retired now, riding his bike out in Arizona. So <laughs> good job out of John. <laughs> but um, we looked at uh, presidential election results, um, gubernatorial election results, Senate election results, House election results, going back to the 1940s. And we're looking at the pattern of relationship, simple bivariate initially, although we upped the ante a little bit later, between partisan vote choice, that is percent vote for the Democrat or Republican, and turnout. And there is no systematic, consistent relationship where higher turnout leads to better performance for Democratic candidates. Uh, it is essentially, if you, you, know, you plot it, it's a flat line. Um, higher levels of turnout don't really affect the proportion of the party vote going one side or the other. Um, well, why does so- that make sense? I mean, if you have a, a, a state, tell us how voter registration interacts with this, right? So if I'm in a, sure. a district locality, Right. Dave, so we're what, registered for one party. It's still this doesn't impact it one way or the other. No, what we're looking at is turnout amongst uh, what we call the we analyze both the voting age population and the voter eligible population. Right. Voter eligible just takes out people who are institutionalized, uh, you know, in prison or 
uh, mental facilities or, or things like that. And they're not they're not actually able to vote, so they shouldn't be in the denominator, right? Um, but by either metric, um, you know, there is no relationship, right? So so we're equalizing <clears throat> across uh, states with ha which have same day registration, like uh, Minnesota. Um, Colorado has moved to same day registration, a bunch of states like that. Um, and you would think, well, you know, those states are going to have high turnout and don't they lean democratic? And no, actually the, the, the logic of the argument is fairly compelling. <clears throat> the logic of the argument is that people who are less likely to vote are lower socioeconomic status. Uh, they're younger. They tend to be disproportionately racial ethnic minorities. And so people say, well, those but you'd assume also, that those categories would be Democratic voters. Exactly. And so the argument is, has always been, and it's not just the United States. You see this argument made in other countries as well, that, that lower status, um, you know, younger voters, they, they're latent Democrats. If only they showed up, they would realize, you mm -hmm. know, this sort of Democratic potential. But what, the, what John and I find, Petrosik and I find in the data is that the, their distinguishing characteristic is they're not that interested, they're not that engaged, they're not very involved with politics. So when they do show up, when these peripheral or casual voters show up, they vote for whoever is advantaged by prevailing political conditions. Sometimes that's the Republicans, sometimes that's the Democrat. Mind-blowing. So not only does it not dictate, you know, voter turnout, you know, doesn't favor one party, but actually what you're learning here is that perhaps... Democrats and Republicans are taking voters for granted, and they're they're actually gettable when they decide to turn out and vote. Did I understand you correctly? Yes, and, and you know the the example, Roger, would be 1984 versus like I don't know 2008. We right? love in 1984 here on the show. Yeah, we do. I know, I know. In 1984, <laughs> um, you know, casual. We we actually looked at the preferences of non-voters using the national election studies because you know it's a national sample. Some people vote, some people don't, and uh, and we validate the data after the election. We go in and find out, is there a record of the person having voted according to the state registrars? And if you look at non-voters in 1984, guess who they supported? They supported Reagan even more than voters did. Um, and it's, you know, the analogy we use, it's, it's, it, it was the, the strongest prevailing political wind. And that's the only thing that peripheral voters tend to hear. Um, you know, the, so the so-called Reagan Democrat would have been perhaps the voter who, well, I guess some, I guess some of it was Democrats who voted Democratic pre-election, but also perhaps people they assumed to be Democratic, but voted yep. for Reagan when they came out there, even though they were, they were a casual voter. That's right. And, it, you know, the same dynamic occurred in 2008 in the opposite direction. It's a big sure. Democratic year, and non-voters preferred Barack Obama by a more sizable rate than, than voters did. So um, now it was funny is in 2018, Petrosik and I had kind of were, were workshopping this argument, and people said, aha, 2018 was a high turnout election and the Democrats won. And, and our response is yes, of course. You know, there was a short term force that favored the Democrats. Um, you know, so I, I don't want to, you know, the argument is falsifiable, right? That our argument would be that, well, the, if you find an election in which um, the short term force favors the Republicans, but political, uh, but, you know, these peripheral voters favor the Democrats. That would falsify our, our argument. You haven't seen that, but but we haven't seen one of those. Well, I, I take mean, me through another election, um, non-expert view, but I think general perception. Twenty sixteen, if there had been higher turnout for Hillary Clinton, right? She didn't right. get the turnout. Let's say that a Barack Obama did in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. If there had been higher turnout, Darren. Would Hillary Clinton have been elected president of the United States based on your analysis? Right. We actually uh, took a look at 2018, 2016 for exactly this reason. Um, and we went into the voter file. And I've look at him. He's got, pulling out the book here. Yeah, We're getting the real out, data I'm analysis. pulling out the book just to make sure that I'm consistent with what we actually published out here. And what we showed is, is what the election outcome would have been at varying rates of turnout. So 1% so turnout all the way through 100% turnout. And what we found, so we're, we're essentially, you know, imputing preferences based on, you know, all these other characteristics that voters have. So we know how people who voted voted, but we don't know how the non-voters voted. But we, we can take a look at the non-voters and basically kind of impute based on what they look like, you know, all their demographic characteristics and these other things impute values. And what we found is, is that if 10% if of the electorate had voted, uh, according to our estimates, um, you know, the result would have been 49 to 48, right? So in other words, a, a real, these are only the core voters, 
right? Clinton wins by one point. If it goes to 100%, Clinton wins 49-46. So there is a turnout effect. If you go from 10% to 100%, Hillary would have But that would not have been enough to impact more. the electoral college no. outcome. No, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to, to, to look at, at these things over time because the, the 2016 data analysis we did is similar to other election analysis. All right, well, let me, let me pull the thread on this argument a bit. So why does turnout matter? It, it, why do we care about turnout? Because whether I'm a Democrat or Republican, if I get, like you said, in 2016, 10% or 100%, the same right. result will, will, you know, will occur. Yeah, well, I, I should be clear on this. So the Virginia example we raised earlier, let's return to Virginia, right? Okay. The, the story in Virginia was it ended up being a high turnout election. And I think the high turnout election was was what got McAuliffe as close as he did to winning the race, right? It, it, we were a week out showing that, you know, there's a six, seven, eight point um, Youngkin lead. Um, and that was, but, but remember that dynamic kind of had the Republicans jazzed up and Republicans were committed to voting and the Democrats were less so. So what happened, I think in the last week or so was the democratic enthusiasm and commitment levels rose. In other words, the, the, the turnout rate got higher and higher because the people who were, you know, kind of engaged late tended to be disproportionately democratic. Um, you know, so the high turnout in that race, um, ultimately, uh, you know, it obviously didn't save the Democrats, right? I mean, this is a state where, you know, Democrats, Biden won by, I think, 12 points. Yeah, it's, uh, it's gone blue. Um, but, you know, the fact that turnout rose and rose and rose actually, you know, ended up helping uh, McAuliffe a little bit. But, you know, it was a record high turnout in, you know, so an it's kind of like election. you want to get the turnout of those who are registered Democrats, if, in the case, if you're pushing you know, uh, advancing a Democratic candidate, similarly on the Republican side. But overall turnout, what I'm hearing yeah. here is that's not really going to shape the outcome one way or the other. No, you're um, just trying to get, each side is trying to get their people to the polls, their right. sort of identifiable voters. And that's that's what campaigns do. And that's, you know, a big deal and, and it's important. But what we're talking about are people who are less reliable, less partisan. The casual and, voter. Yeah, you think they sort of look like your folks, um, and the problem is, you know, the analogy John and I use casually, I don't think we actually used it in the book, was that, you know, the elections are like Super Bowls. Um, there are hardcore fans who are Cowboy fans or Patriot fans, and, and they're going to be there. But most of the people, they're, they're just there for the party. And they tend to pick up on whatever the prevailing wind is. And some, you know, so you get, you get a lot of cowboy and Patriot fans when they're in the Super Bowl, uh, because that's all people hear about, but they're not really football fans. They're not going to be there for some game in October. Fascinating. Uh, let's shift out of your article, the turnout myth, encourage everybody listening and watching uh, to read that in, in national affairs, just kind of goes against public perception, I think, in terms of the connection between turnout, voter turnout, and election outcomes. Here at the Reagan Institute, we've worked with you on our Reagan National Defense Survey for a number of years now. It recently uh, came out and it polls, from our views, a public opinion poll on questions that we think are generally not consistently explored, explored excuse me, uh, in polling. And that is American views with respect to foreign policy, national security, uh, America's role in the world. Taking a broad view of this poll that we've worked on for a number of years together, We've done four of these polls, I think, since 2018. Give me your sense of how the everyday American views kind of foreign policy and you know, their instincts on defense and foreign policy. I, I know you've done polling like this in the past, but my sense is, Darren, this is the most in-depth you've done uh, on this suite of issues. Just as a person who looks at polling all the time, what are kind of your broad takeaways over the years from this polling, the Reagan National Defense Survey? Yeah, uh, Roger, you're right. I mean, I, I do a ton of polling and a national poll every month for Fox, and you know, more more of that and more than that in election years. Uh, but but rarely do you get a chance to really, you know, explore the range of public opinion on national defense issues and foreign policy issues. And so, working with the Reagan Institute on this is just a pleasure. It's it's just fascinating to get a chance to really engage these questions. Um, I, I would say, and this is, I think, an observation that. And, 
just happens to be true, but I think is also consistent with some of the, the core principles of, uh, of the Reagan Institute. What we find is that Americans um, have a strong sense of commitment to, you know, being engaged in foreign policy. There is obviously an isolationist sentiment that exists in American foreign policy. It's, it's, and it, this is something that goes back, you know, hundreds of years into the yes. American psyche, it's right? It's our founding. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's not unexpected, but I, I think one of the interesting um, contributions of Ronald Reagan and the Reagan presidency to uh, American public opinion is, is a sense of commitment um, and a sense of purpose. And, and now this obviously exists coming out of the Second World War, but there's a focus to it given by, by, by President Reagan that I think is in some sense underappreciated in, in certainly the political science and perhaps the foreign policy literature writ large, which is in, in counter to this isolation sentiment, there is a sense that America needs to be committed engaged for American interests, um, you know, to to, to proliferate for the sense of democracy and, and, and sort of justice abroad. A free world is, is good for our own national interest in the form of, you know, prosperity and, and, and peace, but also just, you know, exactly good thing. Exactly. And, and that's something, you know, when you, you know, a lot of the political science literature comes out of two strains. It's sort of exploring isolationism and exploring um, attitudes towards wars and commitments of U S forces abroad. And I'm, I'm interested in that. And that's, you know, with the Iraq and Afghanistan, sure. we, we still have elements of that in our polling. Um, but, but the sort of broader um, notion about should we be engaged, should we be at the front, at the forefront of some of these important issues, human rights, um, you know, challenging China, um, promoting American interests abroad. Uh, th there is consensus that America needs to do that. And there's disagreement over the shape and form. And, and one of the things that, that I know, Roger, you and I have seen in the poll, the, the last couple of polls in particular, the, the spring poll we did in 2021, and then again in this fall poll, is is, is a little bit of uh, skepticism about some of the institutions. Yeah, American that's the one I want to drill down on. And, and uh, we got a few minutes left before we go to lightning round, but I'm glad you, you hit on this. When we started this Reagan National Defense Survey together in 2018, 70% said they had a great deal of confidence in the military. So we asked about a bunch of institutions. The military by far was the most trusted institution. And as I just said, 70% felt they had a great deal of confidence. Now, in this latest survey, 45% say that. So you have this remarkable kind of downward trend and it cuts against something that was very important to, to President Reagan, which was restoring, you know, faith and confidence uh, and trust in the military. It was a big accomplishment uh, during his years in office. What's your take on that, Darren? And does that line up yeah. with kind of the other polls you're seeing in the mood of the country? Or is it unique? Is it sui generis here vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. military? It, it's a great question because you do see this collapse might be too strong a word, but but significant decrease in confidence in some of these traditional institutions. And the military is, is sort of the, the, you know, on the same side of the coin, I would say is police and law enforcement in the United mm -hmm. States, where in our 2018 survey, November, 2018, we had 50% uh, expressing, uh, you know, a great deal of confidence in police and law enforcement. And that number is now 33%. Um, so the, the, the higher the, the confidence kind of in our baseline surveys in, you know, in the, 2018 cycle, um, the the more room there was for support or confidence to come down. For instance, I mean, you could just be like the U.S. Congress, where it was like six percent, you know, back yeah, then. Yeah, you and now live, you live under five percent. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you see, you see it across institutions. So I don't want to make too much. The Supreme Court was 27 percent. Now it's 18. You know, the presidency was 28 percent. Now it's 19. So you do see this across the board. But I, I think. Um, it's, it's come with a little bit of a, a logic to it. So you have some events like Afghanistan and withdrawal from Afghanistan in particular. And then um, there is a sense that we see in some of our, our open-ended data where we ask people, why do you have the confidence that you have in the military, either positive or negative? And on the positive side, people talk about the, the, the servicemen and women, the soldiers, um, right. and, and, the, and the mission, keeping us safe. Um, on the negative side, political leadership, um, partisanship, polarization. And so I, I think, Roger, what you're seeing is, is a sense in the American public that some of these institutions that were, that were above partisanship 
in our perceptions. Interesting. Are they above partisanship anymore? Right, and, and, now, and the leadership, perhaps, to the extent they're in that mud of, of partisanship and you know, political, politicization, now it's impacting their view of the institution. Let me ask you one more. China has been a growing concern we've seen in the minds of the American people year over year. This year's poll, we see that it is viewed, China, that is the greatest threat facing the American people. We didn't have that before. Um, by large margin, there's really no other country that, that comes close. And then relatedly, you see that there is a strong view. 72% believe uh, the, the theory that the coronavirus was leaked from a lab in, in, in Wuhan. Yeah. Talk to me about the mindset of American people vis-a-vis -vis China, specifically they're thinking about corona, coronavirus and, and its origins from China. Yeah, well, just to, you know, make the point even more stark relief, I think in 2018, we asked people about who's, which country is the greatest threat. 21% said China, 30% Russia, 18 North Korea. So the, those top three. Now in our latest poll, 52% China, 14 Russia, 12 right. North Korea. So something's changed. Something has changed. Um, I think it's a combination of, of two things. One is, is the coronavirus. Um, th th there is a sense that, um, you know, and you see this, I guess, a, a lot of your listeners and viewers probably remember John Stewart going on Stephen Colbert's show and basically, you know, a, a guy with strong credentials on the left saying, how could you not think that this right. is a plausible explanation for this, right? I, you know, <laughs> and I think that caught people's attention because it's John it, Stewart. Yeah. Yeah, you know, thinks it, this is reasonable. Right. Um, but but it dovetails with this notion. What you see in the data, and I would encourage people when they get an opportunity to, to, to take a look at the data on this, because the, the threat from China is seen as so multifaceted. What you never right. saw with Russia and North Korea was a perception that those countries were anything other than a than a military slash political threat. Great point. With China, it's military, it's political, it's technological, it's foreign policy. Economic. And Economic, exactly. And, and so the, the range of the threat, the, the diversity of the threat is really And it's fascinating that, that you see that in the polling, it kind of splits almost evenly across all those areas of concern. So you can't yep. kind of limit it to one area. It's almost every area of your life is impact, yep. threatened, challenged by, by China's rise. And that, and that is novel, right? That, that was not the case. Yeah, I mean, you go back to the days of the Cold War, and I, I, you know, I wish we had comparison data, but, um, you know, maybe Russia was seen as an economic threat, but I don't think people, you know, not the way China is right now. And so the, the, the multifaceted nature of the threat is something we don't have precedent for. Well, we're going to jump to the lightning round. Uh, those who want to learn more about the Reagan National Defense Survey, you can go to the reaganfoundation.org backslash defense survey. We didn't get to President Reagan I'll just mention it once again, comes out tops in the survey amongst presidents since Jimmy Carter. The question asked uh, favorability or lack thereof for presidents since Jimmy Carter through President Biden. Once again, uh, President Reagan tops all others. Uh, Darren, the Reagan Foundation, though, it pays for the survey to be done by professionals. It does not pay for that outcome, correct? It's correct. I can attest to that. <laughs> um, I, I was hoping for a bonus, but uh, apparently that's <laughs> that's not in the offing. <laughs> well, let's go to our lightning round. This is where our guests share their favorite book on Reagan, favorite speech by President Reagan, and favorite Reagan quote. Darren, what do you have for us? Well, I think uh, I'm going fairly conventional on the first two. Uh, the Ronald Reagan Diaries, I, I think, for, from an academic point of view, and, and maybe people will, will, will find this interesting as well. Th there was a sense amongst eggheads that, uh, oh, well, sure, Reagan, you know, gave these speeches and was popular, but intellectually, he was a lightweight. He wasn't, you know, he Able wasn't even Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And the, the Reagan diaries had a, a profound impact, I think, on historians' judgment of Reagan, because if and I find them sort of personally fascinating, but I also find them professionally a turning point in how mm. historians kind of conceived of Reagan and his his sense of we we're talking about threat, his sense of the, the place of the United States in this Cold War um, and, and place in history, the fundamental kind of nature of conservatism, what it was and what it wasn't, which was sort of permeates 
these kind of daily ruminations. I, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. And I also think it's, there's some, you know, some elements as you see people like CNN and others do documentaries on the 1980s and, and with all due respect, some of them pushing a particular agenda on issues like uh, AIDS um, yeah. and, and, and crime and things like that. And that narrative, I think, runs aground, at least some of the more pernicious elements, in my opinion, if you compare it to what Reagan is saying in real time about the nature right. of and some this of these is, problems. This is authentically his view, you know, unvarnished. This is the diary he kept every day yeah. while in office for eight years. Pretty remarkable. Right. So give, in, give, in, us, your, give us your speech and quote. I, I got to go with the challenger. Uh, yes, yeah, I know it's drafted. I know it's conventional, and and I I wish you know it's like saying you know the Gettysburg Address is your favorite Lincoln. You know I I I, I wish I had a version of. Don't no need to apologize. Inaugur- it's a great one, and yeah, you know it yeah. shows that some of the greatest speeches are the succinct ones too. Yeah, and 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 so I'll go there on quote. I'll go off the board, so I'll give you something different on the quote. Oh, nice! I, I'm excited. My, my favorite Reagan quote actually was uh, a response. It was when he was governor of California. I'm from San Diego, and I, I remember this. My my parents and grandparents thought it was one of the funniest things they ever saw. Uh, he was giving a speech and had given a speech in Berkeley. Protesters surrounded the the car, the sedan, as Reagan was leaving from the speech, and um, and one of them put up a sign to Reagan's car that said, uh, "We are the future." Um, and Reagan, so this is a quote in the form of a of a response. He wrote in, in on a, a note on a piece of paper and put it back. I'll sell my bonds now. Um, <laughs> which I thought was one of the funniest things I've ever heard from a politician. Um, so I don't know if that qualifies as a quote, but it will for my purposes. And, no, and that, that, that works for us. And I, I, no one, no previous guest has offered that quote. Darren Shaw, thank you so much for being on the show. Roger, pleasure to be here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and on all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.